namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami The next talk in this uh, collection, Don't Take Your Life Personally, is called Beyond the Ego, and this was given on the 1st of August 2001. But uh, before we start that, I would like to uh, read a little follow-up passage. Um, The other day we were uh, talking about space and the symbolism of space, Uh, and uh, uh, it's... uh, its goodness as a image of the unconditioned, the unborn, and its limitations. And there's a passage uh, in the um, Melinda Panha, the questions of King Melinda, which uh, uh, is quoted here in this book, The Island, that is um, relevant. Uh, uh, Sister Kemika brought it to my attention. <coughs> but I was also thinking of it, there's also, there's um, in this uh, section on Nibbana, in the, the, the uh, Questions of King Melinda, the Melinda Panha. There's a lot of um, interesting things and very good images, helpful ways of explaining things. So there's this uh, little passage here about space, but also there's uh, other um, say, uh, similes that he uses and different ways of describing things. So this is in uh, the, chap- the first chapter, What is it? of the island, chapter one. And there's also another... Um, uh, section in uh, the chapter called The Unconditioned and Non-Locality, where also we uh, quote a lot from the Melinda Panha, which is uh, a section there called Nibbana is Not a Place. So that's, also, that's, um, in this, that's chapter 9 of the, uh, uh, of the island, if you're interested in following that up. But this uh, first passage from the Melinda Panha says... Just as space is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of birds, presents no obstacles and is endless, so also Nibbana is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, and is the pathway of the noble, rather than birds. Pathway of the Arahants, presents no obstacles and is endless. So uh, if you're interested in following that up or having a look at that, that's on page 35 of the island, and it's from the uh, Questions of King Melinda uh, uh, sections. 315 to 323. So, this talk of Lumpur Sumatos, called Beyond the Ego. I would like us to consider the words awareness and consciousness, because it's important to see the difference between them. The point is 
we can be conscious but not aware. In fact, we can be conscious and totally deluded. <clears throat> but the delusions that we believe in affect consciousness. So what we are actually doing in Buddhist meditation is using wisdom, panya, to inform consciousness in order to let go of the distortions or delusions that we experience. Now teachings like the Four Noble Truths are meant to be investigated, practiced, realized, and recognized by each one of us for ourselves. I cannot do it for you. And these teachings point to suffering. We talk about great hardship, famine and wars in the world, but unless those hardships, hardships affect us in the moment, our suffering might just be about feeling tired or uncomfortable from eating too much breakfast. Our suffering might not be terribly important, but whatever it is, it's a noble truth. Little irrit irritations and frustrations in the moment are noble truths, if we are willing to look at them in that way. Words like mindfulness and awareness have the sense of wake up. They refer to the simple act of opening, of paying attention now. You might be lost in your own personal problems, and then somebody says, pay attention. Then you open to the present. It's a simple act of just noticing the way it is. You start with the basis of what is here and now, just observing what the body is like right now, for example. The body is coarse, isn't it? It isn't refined like a thought or a feeling. It's an actual blood and guts kind of condition. It's here, it's now, and it is like this. So you notice the four postures of sitting, standing, walking and lying down. It isn't a question of achieving some ideal posture or thinking that you can't get anywhere unless you assume the full lotus posture. Whatever way your posture is, just be aware of it. Even if it's a bad posture, the point is to be aware, to notice. As you pay attention to your body more and more, you'll find that it adjusts itself. Trying to force your body into doing what you want it to merely creates a lot of tension. Many people do this. They try to make the body do what it isn't ready to do, or can't do, and consequently put it under a lot of stress. In meditation, however, we include the body. I used to find that I didn't want to be bothered with the body. Too boring. I wanted to get into refined places in my mind, rather than just be with this lump, this boring thing. I wanted to go into refined, blissful states, so I put a lot of effort into concentration practices, which was really like my attempt to ignore the body. But it didn't work. The body would insist, look at me, and would become very painful and unpleasant when ignored. So we learn to include the body in practice, and it becomes a foundation for mindfulness, rather than an apparent obstruction to it. So a couple of um, uh, comments to make uh, along the way there. So uh, he, um, uh, in this last little uh, passage where he says, um, you'll find that if you pay attention to your body more and more, you'll find that it adjusts itself. Trying to force your body into doing what you want it to merely creates a lot of tension. So there have been a lot of knees uh, and backs wrecked over the years. Um, people trying to sit like a, a Buddha image and to um, uh, force the body into the full lotus or the half lotus or, or do various kinds of um, extended periods of, of sitting and such like with it or adventurous yoga postures. And so that even though that might be with a, 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 a noble intention, uh, a uh, something that seems to be right and good and helpful, the very 
way that the mind picks it up and tries to, to force the body into a particular form then creates uh, damage along the way. So when I arrived at Wat Pananachat many, many years ago, there'd been a whole succession of, of uh, Western monks and novices who'd wrecked their knees. And uh, fortunately, um, Kitisaro, who had been a yoga teacher before he was a monk, was there. And so he was, he was able to give... Uh, a lot of instruction. So the most, the most of the instruction I got, first of all, was like, "Don't rush, don't rush, don't push it. Just be uh, be attentive. Don't don't be too zealous or uh, say um, um, too achievement oriented in terms of, of yoga practice. That uh, you can cause yourself a lot of harm and a lot of trips to the, the hospital. So, uh, so that um, uh, that quality of um, a self-adjustment is. Uh, he doesn't make. It doesn't say a lot about it here, but I, I've, I find that's an extremely uh, important principle in in meditation. And so that uh, a few times I've been talking about the skillful way of making effort, or effort based on on uh, right view, or effort based on uh, mindfulness and wisdom, rather than me trying to do something. So when it's me trying to make the posture right, me trying to to sit in a certain way, or me. Um, trying to overcome pain um, by holding the posture in a certain way, uh, then almost invariably that that self-driven habit or that way of effort being made from the desire to become or the desire to get rid of, then that keeps things out of balance and um, and uh, creates a lot of stress and tension in the body, as he says, and also can lead to a lot of physical injury. It's also the case that some um, some meditation methods highly emphasize you know don't don't move don't move a millimeter that uh, any kind of movement is uh, is an intrusion on the practice the practice quote unquote as as they're describing it so when it says don't move there's a sort of freezing of the body and like a, a sort of forbidding you're not allowed to move uh, a millimeter because that's quote unquote the practice so i find that um my experience of uh, of that of uh that attitude, both within myself and other people, is that also leads to a great deal of, of uh, uh, suffering, <laughs> tension, and and also can lead to, to injury. I'm sure it has its own value, its own purpose, uh, and various different traditions emphasize that within the, uh, the Japanese or Chinese tradition, also some of the Theravada traditions, they, they talk about it in that way. But um, my, uh, my experience is that uh, what I find is more helpful is to recognize that the 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 uh, the body and the uh, nature itself is a is a self-adjusting system. You'll, our body is part of the natural order, is part of the universe. It's a self-adjusting system, and so that um, what I uh, often encourage people to do is to to notice how, if say during the meditation sitting, you realize that your your body is is tense or your body is kind of slumped over, then rather than the the the, the mind jumping in and say, "Oh, I'm all slumped over. Just sit up straight," you know, because uh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And what will they think if I'm not sitting straight? You know, if, I'm, if I'm slumped over, the mysterious they whose job is to judge everything that we're doing. <laughs> but uh, uh, <clears throat> then it's uh, the the straightening of the body is being driven by that bhavatanha, the desire to become or sort of self view. I should be this way. I shouldn't be that way. But instead, um, uh, when I talk about the the body and the, uh, our life being a self-adjusting system, uh, what is the the adjusting agent? The adjusting agent is 
the quality of awareness itself. So if you if you notice, say, in the meditation that your body is slumped over rather than I should sit up straight because that's what I'm supposed to do, if you just bring the quality of awareness to the body in that slumped posture and then just be let the mind be as fully uh, open and aware of that, uh, of the, the body being arranged like that in the kind of slumped over way, then of itself the, the body will adjust. It's a self-adjusting system. And the, what uh, brings about the adjustment to the uh, most well-integrated and balanced posture is the quality of, of awareness. So that um, you can try this yourselves. <laughs> I would encourage it. And uh, just to see how, uh, without sort of me doing anything, what happens is that you just bring attention to that sort of slumped posture and then the, the body... straightens on its own. And then there's also the, uh, the recognition, of, okay, that's it. And that's not uh, coming from a concept or a, a conditioning, but just your own, this mind's attunement to, to this body and uh, recognizing that. So it's, it's not complicated, it's not difficult, um, but uh, if you develop that as a, a way of working with the body, then you can extend that to your whole life. <laughs> so that that's one of the things of the the power of awareness is that just like, the uh, the the system will adjust itself to that which is most harmonious, that which is most uh, balanced and and simple, and um, and virtuous. You know, that's sila works in exactly the same way. But if you bring awareness, if you're moved by a feeling of aversion or deceit or fear or uh, uh, anger, and then there's awareness of that then rather than, oh, I shouldn't say something nasty because I'm not supposed to, that would be against the precepts as a, as a concept. If there's awareness of that impulse, then what arises in the heart is like, no, that's not worth saying. <laughs> right, leave, leave that alone. Not because I should leave that alone, but it's the effect of awareness, that, quality, that, that, that uh, mindfulness and wisdom being brought to that, uh, that impulse and then recognizing that uh, this is going to go to a painful result, so let's not go that way. Similarly, if something is is kindly and unselfish and generous and uh, thoughtful, <coughs> then the, the uh, awareness is brought to that. Then also, it's, rather than just immediately acting on that, oh, that's a good thing to do, there's recognition, oh, this is wholesome, that's noble, that's a beautiful thought. Is this the right time to say something? Is this the right time to pay somebody a compliment or to say thank you or to say, can I give you a hand or uh, is it not? So that, that quality of discernment and, and uh, attunement to the time, the place, the situation is there in, in the mix as well. It's also interesting in uh, Lumpur Sumato saying he wanted to absorb his mind into, into more uh, refined places rather than be just with this lump, this boring thing. Um, and it's also very much a, a, a sort of centerpiece of the forest tradition, both from uh, from uh, Lumpur Man, uh, Lumpur Cha, and the forest Ajans, that there's very much a, um, uh, a, a an emphasis on mindfulness of the body and to be uh, relating to the body in a in a, a careful, attentive, and, and thoughtful way, rather than being dismissive or, or um, uh, ignoring the the body. And it's interesting that in the uh, 
<coughs> the Sangyuta Nikaya, there's a section uh, of the Connected Discourses, that is the Connected Discourses about the un- the unconditioned, the Asankata Sangyuta, and the very first one um, of those suttas, they're all very, very similar. So they all begin with the Buddha saying, I'll teach you the unconditioned and the way leading to the unconditioned. And the very first one is, and what is the uh, the way leading to the unconditioned? Mindfulness directed towards the body. That is the way leading to the unconditioned. That's the, that's the first sutta in that whole section of the Sangita. And so that uh, um, that uh, is a, a very uh, a very important thing to bear in mind. So if you notice that you don't want to, don't want to quote-unquote bother with the body, <laughs> or think it's not important, then uh, it's useful to bring those teachings to mind. Also, just in terms of uh, sustaining mindfulness, another of the very significant things about the body is that the body is always in the present moment. It doesn't wander off into the past and future like our imagination can. You know, our memories can recreate the past and our imagination can create the future. Our body won't go. It's always absolutely here. So if you want the attention to be grounded in the present reality, one guaranteed way to do that, you know, bring it to the, to the body because it's always here. It doesn't wander off. There's never been a, uh, a situation that I'm, I've ever heard of where someone has got, say, sitting in meditation, got so distracted that their body, when they when their attention came back to their cushion, the body wasn't there anymore. <laughs> that would be a big surprise. But <clears throat> that's never happened. You know, the, the body is the, is like the most reliable friend. It's the most dependable companion. So it's the the guaranteed connector of the mind to the, the present reality. So to continue. Contemplate your body sitting right now. Just notice what it is like. Observe that sitting is like this. Notice the pressure of the body on the cushion. And what comes into consciousness while sustaining attention on the experience of sitting. As you open the door, as it were, the body will inform you. Trying to make the body sit straight, making a determined effort to force your body into what you think is sitting straight, is a willful act and creates a lot of stress. And even if you do manage to hold the body in a a tense, rigid position, you won't be able to sustain it for long. If, on the other hand, you trust more in awareness and give the body the opportunity, it will adjust itself. That's what I was saying. It knows what it needs more than you do, actually. (laughs) That is because it isn't yours. It isn't really you. When you claim it, you claim something that is not really yours. So it's better to learn how to live with it. Trying to own the body or abusing it in various ways is not very considerate to it. Now this sense of relaxing and opening, this kind of attention, is not attention, like like a military command. It's an invitation, an encouragement to sustain attention. If you feel tension in the body, let it be tension. Don't try to make it go away. Trust in just allowing it to be. In that way, the body will be able to do what it needs to do. The same with physical pain. When you feel an ache or pain, accept it. Let it be painful rather than trying to get rid of it. All this pushing away, this denying, this endless rejection of conditions or experiences you don't like and don't want is one of the causes of suffering. The attitude to encourage, then, is more like welcoming 
allowing. If pain is present, allow it to be what it is. Goenka teaches an insight meditation technique which involves mentally sweeping through the body and noticing sensations. It's very good, actually. I often use it. But the method has been developed into a main technique. You start usually with mindfulness of the breath, anapanasati, and then you put your attention on the, on the top of the head and become aware of any sensations you feel up there. You can't see the top of your head, of course, but you can feel it. Then you sweep around to the back of the head, down through the face, the eyes, the mouth, the ears, the nose, this powerfully sensitive area of the body. Move down to the throat, the neck and shoulders, on through each arm, to each hand, the trunk of the body, down through the legs, and then back up again. You notice neutral sensations like your clothes touching your skin. And this is neither pleasant nor painful, but you certainly feel it. The point is, this keeps your attention on what is present here and now, and you're doing it in a way that is fraught neither with the sense of ego nor with personal habits. You're looking at it in quite an objective way, as experience. There is the body with its pleasure, its pain and neutral sensations. There is the breath. And you're simply putting your attention on what is happening right now, without judging, criticizing or making any kind of willful self-effort. There is no question of trying to be the best, trying to get the perfect posture, trying to get rid of pain or trying to sit through the pain barrier. It's just like this. Many people regard meditation either as something to accomplish or as a way of trying to prove something. But it isn't a matter of reaching a standard of attainment or of being better than anyone else. Wanting to be successful is just supporting a sense of being a personality, an ego. Trusting oneself as a person is based on the delusion of I've got to prove that I can do it. Rather than looking at it th uh, through vanity or egotism, however, look at it through an inner sense of opening, observing, noticing that which you would not know that which you would not ordinarily notice. Just the simple act of sitting. The neutral feelings of the clothes touching the skin. The touching of one hand on the other. The upper lip touching the lower lip. Just noticing things that are so ordinary, you wouldn't usually give them any attention at all. You wouldn't think them important. Actually, it's through this kind of practice that we begin to understand, to develop wisdom, and to break out of the old habits acquired through ignorance and not understanding the truth. The body is here and now, the breath is here and now, the sound of silence is here and now, consciousness is here and now, but thought and emotion arise and cease. We're looking at things in terms of their presence and absence rather than in terms of their qualities, whether they are high or low, good or bad. This is learning to trust in intuitive attention of the present. The mind wanders because we believe in time as a reality. We're very committed to identifying with the age of the body, to the idea of the future as something that we have to plan for, or the past as something to regret. We resent the unfairnesses and the injustices that we've been subjected to in the past, and feel guilty about the things that we've done to others. In meditation, we can suddenly feel incredibly guilt-ridden about something we did maybe 30 years ago, or worries can just as suddenly come into consciousness about the future. The point is to get a feel for being present with the body and breath, especially in the beginning stages of meditation. 
You're just getting the sense of being in the spaciousness of the present moment without trying to solve all your problems or analyze yourself in any way. Things then naturally start coming into consciousness. On retreats, people sometimes remember things that they've not thought about for years, or sometimes arises into consciousness that they spent their lives trying to reject. But I see this as a kind of beginning to let go of that tendency to control everything. Instead of being caught in the fear and tension of controlling, you start to allow, maybe, what you've never allowed into consciousness before. And once you allow things into consciousness, you can let them go. But first you have to allow them. You have to allow resentment, anger, fear, guilt, or anything else to become conscious. So this is a, a very common experience when we start meditation, and particularly uh, doing a meditation retreat, <coughs> that um, we can think of ourselves as quite a, a you know, kind, good-hearted, honest person, quite friendly, and and um, a sort of generally a good member of society, and um, quite a, 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 an unselfish character. And then we sit down to meditate, and we watch our minds, and there's this kind of firestorm of greed, hatred, and delusion, and resentful feelings um, to about other people or feelings of greed or, or as he said, things that we, we remember from 30 years ago that um, how we teased that child in our primary school and uh, how we've, um, we feel terrible about um, uh, the, uh, the kind of uh, impulses of, of greed and aversion and, uh, and so on that we experience and think, oh, this is terrible. Before, before I started meditating, I was fine. I was quite a nice person. And now that I've started to meditate, there's all this kind of monstrous stuff going on in my mind. I should stop meditating so that I don't have all these horrible feelings. And, and why do I want to murder someone because they moved my cushion? You know, that, uh, and, and literally, it can happen. You know, that, uh, I think a few days ago, I was mentioning how someone who's been a meditator for, for 30 or 40 years, when the retreat manager moved their, their, their cushion about four or five inches in the, in the meditation hall, they were absolutely enraged. They were ready to get in, you know, get in the car and drive home. It's because their cushion had been moved. It's like, how dare you! you know? and, uh, so that, um, but I, I, uh, as the Lumpur is saying here, I, I, uh, rather than taking that to be a sign of something going wrong, I, I would say that's a, uh, often it's a sign of uh, okay now we're, things that have been bottled up or hidden away or, or have been sort of suppressed for a long time now they they have a chance to be uh, to be recognised and things that have have not been made conscious they can be made conscious and so the image that comes to mind with this is like a, with a cooking pot you know if you have a if you're on the washing up here and um, there's a cooking pot that's that's been used for, for quite a few weeks and it's got a certain amount of of baked on um, uh, sort of residue in the bottom of the pot that has been left to, to boil or to uh, to uh, cook the food for a bit too long, and so there's this sort of black um, burnt residue that's that's actually sort of fixed to the metal, and so that uh, you, in 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 order to make the pot really clean, you have to get in there with a Brillo pad and kind of with all kinds of cleaning agents to scrub, 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 scrub. I used to really like doing the washing up. Uh, it was my it was my favorite activity here at Amravati. So, when I got appointed abbot here, they for, the monks forbade me from being on the washing up team. I'm not objecting, but uh, I do I do enjoy washing up. And one of the, the the things was the that just sometimes when you got a, a pot that had been used for months and months and 
people had allowed the, the baked on stuff to say, well, it's good enough, you know, it's not kind of, there's no food residue there, it's just carbon, you know, <laughs> sort of carbon welded to the steel, and so it's, it's not harmful, just leave it as it is. And I used to like to get in there and just sort of stay with the pot until, you know, as long as it took for like half an hour or an hour sometimes, and go at it with, with bleach and Brillo pads and this and that, until finally, ta-da, it's... It's uh, the bright, shiny metal at the end. But as you're going along, there's some pretty gunky stuff. There's layers of sort of these, these um, black, burnt, different strata of <laughs> different layers of, of burning that have happened over the years. And so that, that's pretty gunky, <coughs> pretty gunky stuff. It's, kind of, it, it's, it's uh, dark and hard and, and uh, pretty messy as it comes off. But it's, uh, it's not a bad thing that it's, it's being... Um, Separated from the pot because it, you know, it's a, a part of the cleaning process. Then that's that um, that baked-on material uh, doesn't have to be there. It can be released, and it, and it actually will improve the pot to have it uh, uh, have it sort of um, removed. And so, in our minds, it's a very very similar process. Again, all, all analogies are not perfect; they're partial. But when we sit down to meditate. Then uh, just seeing this, this sort of waves and waves of, of stuff, and uh, the mind getting obsessed with tiny little details. How you can uh, <clears throat> you cannot realize the effect of your mind having a constant supply of things to be interested in, or involved with, or responsible for. And when that's all cut off, and you're just sort of uh, blob number five, row three, and that, that's that's your entire uh, sort of purpose or existence. You've got nothing to no um, no conversation to have, you haven't got any news to watch, you haven't got any TV programs to follow. There's just your mind and your body and the, and the retreat routine. And you can become totally obsessed with what they're going to cook for breakfast or, uh, or whether there's going to be any of your favorite thing left there when, the, when breakfast time comes. And you can be uh, first thing in the morning, you know, even before you've made it into the meditation hall, had the, the morning meditation and chanting, you're like, how can I position myself? You know, you're working out strategies of how to get first in the queue, and and and, and still not look like the person who wants to be first in the queue, you know, because that's sort of spiritually degrading to to want to be first. You know, the, you know, I'm supposed to not kind of be keen. I have to sort of be nonchalant, pretend I don't really care, look like I really don't care. And oh, well, I'm first, am I? Oh, that's interesting. Okay, okay. Well, I'll be first then. You know? And that mind can be creating all these kind of acrobatics. Um, and you you haven't even made it to the shrine room yet. It's still only kind of five o'clock in the morning, uh, and I'm speaking from personal experience as well. So that you, know, uh, you can become totally uh, obsessed with with tiny things that you really didn't care about before. Why am I so focused on apples? You know, I could I quite happily lived for months and months without having an apple, but now apple, got to have an apple. You know, I need the apples. I want an apple. I don't, but you know, just a random, a random food item that the mind is comes up with. That uh, you, th- you can look at that and think, well, this is really, really crazy. But if you see how the the, the field of desire objects and uh, uh, aversion objects has narrowed to a very, very, very small selection, and the the habits of mind of, of fearing, wanting, desiring, opinionating complaining it hasn't got much to choose from so those habits will land on anything that they can find and so rather than thinking of that as being a a sign of the meditation going wrong 
it would be like, okay, well, this this pot is uh, <laughs> this pot really needed some cleaning, so that it's no surprise there's some there's some gunk coming off the off the the, the bottom of it because uh, that's uh, it's been ignored and neglected for a, a long, long time. So, in, any questions, reflections, thoughts? Don't be shy. No. <clears throat> okay. The first noble truth is all about accepting or welcoming unsatisfactoriness or suffering, dukkha, rather than trying to resist it. You'll notice, then, that its nature is to change and drop away. The way to liberate the mind from the subconscious fears and anxieties that we all have is simply by allowing them to be. Good psychotherapy is based on allowing things to become conscious. If life is just one long effort of denial and repression, it's misery, isn't it? To spend your whole life controlling your mind out of fear and ignorance is hell. So you begin to have the insight that there really is nothing to fear. No matter how frightened you are, or how much you think you cannot stand it, or or cannot bear it, actually you can. The voice that says, oh, I can't do it, I just can't take it. Don't believe that. That is how one is conditioned to, to think, but it isn't true. And funnily enough, I was saying exactly that to some people today. Um, uh, that one of the most uh, direct ways to peacefulness in meditation is to learn how not to believe our thoughts. And I was telling this exact, using this exact example, because when uh, Lumpur Sumedha was a young monk, and uh, he had a very uh, important insight, a profound insight one day at Wapapong as during one of these uh, long practice sessions, either when he was sitting meditating or listening to a Dhamma talk, and uh, there was this uh, this feeling of it being hot and being eaten by mosquitoes and being uncomfortable, and, and his mind was going, I can't bear it, I can't bear it, I can't bear it. And then he had this, pro- this profound insight that even as his mind was saying, I can't bear it, actually he was bearing it. Uh, so that... <clears throat> You realize, oh, it's not true. <laughs> My thoughts, uh, they're saying I can't bear it, but it's not true, I can. Huh, look at that. And so, uh, even though it wasn't a particularly profound state of concentration or anything uh, that he was in, he was, uh, it was a, a very potent insight. That, oh, that, these thoughts are lies. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, the thinking mind is a liar. It's not true. So it's a, you know, this point that he, he makes here, and that... Um, the uh, <clears throat> uh, you know also that uh, if life is one long effort of denial and repression, it's misery, isn't it? To spend your whole life controlling your mind out of fear and ignorance is hell. So uh, Jean-Paul Sartre was famous for saying, "Hell is other people," but um, another way of putting it is, "Hell is your mind's <laughs> your your, uh, your mind's uh, sense of uh, of self is really the." The, the cause of those hellish feelings of me not not wanting it to be the way that, that uh, things are. So in a way, the uh, the mind's attachment to I, me, and mine is hell. So in fact, uh, hell is not other people. Hell is you, <laughs> or us. The hell is the uh, the the I, me, mine feeling that if that's attached to and believed in and taken as a solid reality. Then that's a a hellish experience, and. Um, uh, so it would be interesting to have a conversation with Jean Paul about if he was still alive. So, yeah. Well, 
That's uh, <coughs> not in this lifetime, anyway. Ajahn Chah was very good at getting me to see this in myself. Sitting in a hot tropical monastery feeling totally miserable, I would think, I can't take any more of this, the heat, the mosquitoes, this boring lifestyle, I've had enough. But I could take it, actually. I began to realize that what was going on in my mind was something not to believe, and that if I followed it, it would always limit me. If I stopped at this point, however, it would just disappear, because it didn't have a life of its own. It was just a habit. Now, trust is important. There is so much fear and suspicion in our lives that we don't trust ourselves or anyone else very much. Sometimes we just live on the surface, just get by. I'm not talking about trusting the ego, of course. There is no ego you can trust, mine included. <laughs> but we can trust our awareness. I keep emphasizing this because it's quite important. I cannot make you do it, of course, but I can encourage you. The point is, if you don't trust awareness enough, you're always going to be thrown into doubt and self-disparagement. When I trust, it's in this attention. I trust in the ability to listen. The voice that says, I can't stand it. I don't trust that. But I trust my ability to listen to it and know it for what it is. When some kind of condition or emotion comes up, or when there isn't anything at all, it is like this. Trust that. Trust just knowing whatever is. If there's nothing, then nothing is like this. Did you get that? If there's nothing, then nothing is what is like this. <laughs> a lot of our experience is of confusion, doubt and uncertainty. But we don't like these kinds of things. We don't like these kinds of feelings, do we? We prefer clarity and certainty. There's a lot of resistance to confusion and doubt. But trust in your ability to know that confusion. Sometimes life is just confusing. We can't really expect it to be always perfectly well arranged on the level of conditioned experience. We might like to have everything completely efficient, where nothing confuses us, but where we know where we know what the time is, when we should do this and when, when to do that, a neat package of certainty, like in Switzerland. Any Swiss people here? He spent a lot of time in Switzerland. The Swiss are masters at organizing life, aren't they? But they're not necessarily a joyful people. And there's also a lot of confusion there. When we depend on having everything certain and clear, we resist confusion and can get very angry when things don't work properly. It's like wanting India to have the certainty of, say, Britain. You see Westerners freaking out when they go to India, just blowing up because they can't take the uncertainty or confusion that usually revolves around life there. If we begin to notice confusion as confusion and uncertainty as uncertainty, there is a clarity in that. The clarity is in the knowing of it as it is, rather than in trying to straighten out the conditioned world so that it never upsets us or confuses us. There is no point in asking for the impossible, demanding something that can never really be. The conditioned world is changing according to conditions, and we don't really have that much control over it. Clarity comes through our awareness of this fact, rather than through trying to organize and bend the conditioned world to fit an image that makes us feel all right and gives us a sense of security. So I, I would echo this. I think uh, spending time in India is, uh, should be a required practice for anyone interested in 
learning how to let go and to develop adaptability. It's an absolutely magnificent country, Mother India, uh, the homeland of the Dhamma, uh, because it's it's just marvelously unpredictable, and uh, the <coughs> the light just going down an average in Indian street, you know, they have traffic going in both directions, or somebody with a bicycle with you know fifteen lengths of rebar, with a, you know ten times the length of the bicycle, and then they kind of take a left turn in front of you in the middle of the street. Fortunately, there's lots of potholes in the streets, so all the cars only go at about uh, 25 kilometers per hour maximum because of all the potholes. So, but you have to uh, adjust and maneuver. You can't predict what's going to happen around you at any one time. I think anyone who's a, a control freak uh, <laughs> who goes to, to India, you know, it, it's, just, uh, it's just brought to their, their, their face. You know. And I've often uh, told the story of how we... I was traveling in India for a year, and um, <clears throat> I was making a, a. I was trying to keep my practice as simple as possible, so I thought I'll just meditate on feeling. Just make that the focus of what I'm doing here in India. Just meditate on feeling. And so uh, one time we, uh, I was uh, traveling with um, a couple of different uh, American fellows, uh, Eric McCord and Greg Scharf, and and uh, so we. Uh, I forget where we were uh, in, a, in an Indian town and we had um, booked a train t- a train ticket to make a, a, I think it was going from something like from Delhi down to to um, Bhopal in Madhya Pradesh, something like that. And so we, we got to the, the station and they said, oh, the, the train that you're booked on, it was a, a sleeper train and that, that one's been cancelled, but the replacement train will, will come here, uh, will be leaving the station at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Okay, so fine, no problem. Just this is the feeling. Of, okay, we, this is the feeling of okay. We spend another day in Delhi, no problem. Okay, so we went back to the, the the guest house where we were staying, and then went back to the station the next morning. And so they said the train's going at ten o'clock. Okay, so you want to get there by eight, <laughs> so you can find the platform, find the train, find the listing of where your where your your sleeper is, and and then. And you're all, you're in, everything's in good in good shape for when the, the the train's ready to go. So we got to the um, to the station, and uh, and then and then start looking for the uh, the the listing for the, the train to Bhopal in Madhya Pradesh, and uh, and then so we we were looking for it, looking for it, and then uh, finally asked at the uh, one of the the station offices. Um, you know, where, where's the, the the train for Bhopal that was uh, rescheduled from from uh, seven o'clock yesterday evening? It's supposed to be leaving at ten o'clock this morning. I said, "Oh, it has been preponed, sir." <laughs> preponed? Yes, sir. It has departed already. It's only it's only eight o'clock. Says, yes, sir. It was preponed. So that's when you discover what the the, the word preponed is the opposite of postponed. <laughs> so. And when you look up the word preponed in the Oxford English Dictionary, it actually says infrequent usage in the Indian Indian railway system. (laughs) Most common usage. So it's not a very common word. And they had the train had gone. It was like, yeah, it was supposed to leave at ten, and it it came at five, and it left at eight, and it was it was preponed. So your train is gone, sir. Okay, okay. So we stay another day in Delhi, you know, (laughs) and. um, so if you are ready to be adaptable, then you you can find your way. But if you have if you are trying to control everything, 
Those of you who live at Amravati will probably find the same thing here. Anyone, who's, any, uh, anyone who tries to be a control freak at Amravati, you will suffer, you probably have suffered. <laughs> so uh, adaptability is the, the, uh, the key to happiness. It's also one of the reasons why Lumpur Sumato developed the phrase um, intuitive awareness as his translation of the Pali Sati Sampajanya. So normally, uh, in sort of classical uh, translations into English, that would be mindfulness and full awareness or mindfulness and clear comprehension, sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. But to, comprehension means that you understand things, or you, you've, got, uh, you've got a clear picture, uh, you, you know how things are working. And so he, he Lumpur is a very intuitive <laughs> teacher, and he said, yeah, well, it's... You can be fully, you can have mindfulness, you can have sati sampajanya, something that you don't comprehend at all. That you can be, you can know that you don't know. As he's saying here, you can be mindful of being confused. You can know, this is really confusing. You, and that, that, at that moment, the mind is fully aware, uh, it's awake to the fact this is confusing. I don't know what's going on. So that's still sampajanya, that, that, but it's not, you don't comprehend, it's not an understanding. Um, and so he started, he, he sort of pondered and thought, well, okay, so what, what would be a better way of expressing that? So then he came up with the term uh, intuitive wisdom or intuitive awareness. Because intuition in English carries that sense of you've got a feeling for what's going on, but it's not, there's some fu- there's fuzziness in the picture as well. It's not absolutely precise and defined. Um, and so he, he started using intuitive awareness. Uh, as a uh, a way of of describing that quality, so that it represented this this um, theme that he's talking about here, how you can uh, you can be uh, you can have clarity of the fact that you are confused. It's just like uh, uh, at night time; it's dark, you can't see, and that you, if you haven't got a, a torch or you're away from a, a light, it's like you, you can't. Is that a, is that a tree? Is that a person? Is it? You've got the snow landing on the bushes, like. Is that, is that an Anagari car? No, it's a, no, it's a bush covered in snow. No, oh no, it's uh, it's Peijing. Oh, sorry, I thought you were a bush. You know, so, don't mind me using you as an object system. So that uh, you can't see clearly, but you can know that you, you you can be fully aware that you can't see clearly. That's the, and that, in that moment, there's the mind is not creating any, any dukkha around it. If you, if you want to see clearly, or you feel you should be able to see clearly, then you create suffering around it. But uh, it's recognizing that there can be mindfulness and full awareness of things that are not understood. And this is a really helpful insight, particularly when you get ill, and you're, uh, or you're, you're, uh, you're really upset at some kind of crisis in the family or in the monastery, or uh, you have a, an illness, or you're feverish, and you know, your thoughts are all over the place, and you're 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 really exhausted, and tired, or as as you get older, or when the, the the mind loses its capacity to be integrated, you can't think straight. Then uh, to be able to be able to know that uh, here is the mind not being able to think straight. Here is the the sort of emotions flipping and flopping around all over the place. Uh, that the mind that knows that lack of control or, or, or things are confusing um, the, the mind is taking refuge in that awareness and as Lumpur was saying over and over again that trusting in awareness rather than in I can't be happy unless I can think straight um, and that uh, 
for us in uh, in uh, our society in in modern times in particular there's a great deal of taking refuge in thought and, and memory and ideas and when you can't remember somebody's name or you you, uh, you 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 lose your thread halfway through speaking to somebody or you um, your mental functions start to break down then it's really distressing and, and painful difficult um, but if we've developed this quality of, of, uh, of wisdom this uh, intuitive awareness then even as the functions break down it might be inconvenient but you're not going to create suffering around it and uh, it's it's very interesting and helpful that you know Lumpur Cha's own sort of brain injuries that came through his illness at uh, in his early sixties that he had a, a some kind of a stroke or brain damage from an illness and that uh, that was happening for him but he knew how not to make a problem out of it and uh, he would say he <laughs> and he would he would talk about it, he'd say oh. I meant to say, uh, "Come here, Ananda," and I said, "Come here, Samato." Huh? Isn't that funny? Yeah. He, you know, he recognized that I meant to say, "Come here, come here, Ananda," but uh, uh, what came out of his mouth was Samato. Huh? Interesting. Yeah, he saw that it was taking a wrong turn, yeah. and that uh, because of that, the development of wisdom, he knew how not to make a problem out of that. And then, as his illness um, progressed over the next. Uh, six months or a year, then it got uh, far more uncontrollable till he, he really couldn't uh, control his speech very much at all. So eventually he just stopped talking while well, he could still talk because yeah, he would he would just say such weird things that would be really uh, so the things that were sort of distressing or confusing to people. And they would get upset and he realized, okay, it's causing more, more trouble than it's worth. So I'm just going <laughs> to just keep, keep quiet because of that. Uh, the the things that he would say would be just very strange or out of place or meaningless and that and he knew that he wanted to say you know good morning Sumato how are you today and, he, and what he actually said was sort of mountain elephant you know, sticky rice what <laughs> what's he talking about so that uh, but he knew that that was uh, he was aware that the wrong words had come out but he he also knew how not to make a uh, a, a problem out of it. So that um, ability to be mindful of our thoughts and to not uh, take refuge in them, uh, that becomes very, very useful as we get older. And uh, we're all heading in that direction, even those of us us who have still got no no gray hairs at all. Uh, The the flow of life is inexorably in that direction, so those faculties wear down. And it's also not just in terms of mental faculties, but also physical faculties, the way the mind relates to not being able to hear so well, or to move so well, or to have so much strength, um, it can relate to those changes with, a, with a, the same kind of um, ease and, and objectivity, rather than, uh, I should be able to do this, like, I, 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 I want to be able to do that, if I, my life is not worth living if I can't do X, Y, and Z. But, oh, well, instead the, the mind changes its attitude to, well, <laughs> there goes another one, the, which is easy to be casual about, and it can things can come with a lot of obstacles. Like if you lose your eyesight, you, know, you can't see so well, then that becomes a a, uh, a major difficulty. Or, or your hearing, those are things that have to be worked with. But it's still up to each one of us whether the mind makes a, a problem out of it from moment to moment or not. 
the, the other day I was someone was uh, talking about my mother having macular degeneration and she was a very active woman and, and liked to 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 be doing things she she read a lot she uh, and she was very independent she liked to drive and go places and look after herself and um and so as her eyesight was going it started going when she was about 70 and by the time she was 75 it was she could, could hardly see at all um but I, I was trying to think did i ever hear her complain she was she would moan about where <laughs> where did i leave my magnifying glass you know or uh, she would feel like, well, you know, where have I, where have I put such and such down? Because I'd like to remember where I put the, um, put something. But she about actually losing her sight. She, uh, I, I was trying to think: did she ever grumble? Did she ever complain? Or they, oh, this is unfair, or oh, this is, uh, or oh, this is frustrating, or this is, uh, oh, why me? And I couldn't remember her ever having said that. I thought that's that's a really good example. I hadn't even noticed that. But uh, to be Losing your faculties and then adjusting your life to try and take care of that, but not creating that suffering or complaining uh, around it. That's a a a fine uh, a fine example. So to continue a little bit, the point is, the ego is a mental object. So when you give the ego your power, you're empowering something that doesn't have any wisdom. Your experience of life will then always be distorted through that, and you'll suffer endlessly as a result. Buddha's teaching is about getting beyond the ego, not trying to annihilate it though, and getting to the pure subject, the absolute subject, the buddho, the Buddha, awareness, just simple attention, listening, opening. You cannot get beyond this center, this still point, in which you have the perspective on the turning world around you. If you're out on the wheel, you're caught in the dizzying momentum of going round in circles. We call it samsara, samsara vata, meaning going round in circles. Endless cycles, not really going anywhere, but round. That's why when you do things from ignorance, you find yourself coming back and repeating the same things over and over again. You're out on the perimeter, moving round with it. Getting to the very center, the still point on the other hand, is by the simple act of attention. You don't have to spend years learning how to do this. It's not a skill that is too refined or too remote for any of you. It's just learning to recognize and trust it. From this still point, you can observe the things that are revolving. You see changing conditions for what they are without being taken over by them, by that which you previously identified with. And you see that your personality or self-view is conditioned. Pay attention right now and say your name to yourself. I am so-and-so. Use your own name. Listen to yourself repeat. I am Ajahn Sumato. I am Ajahn Sumato. That is listening to your ability to think and create yourself as a person, as a name. And when you stop thinking, I am Ajahn Sumato, there's awareness, isn't there? It's pure subjectivity, absolute subjectivity. It is attentive, conscious. But what happened to Ajahn Sumedho? Now at first, you may not quite realize the profundity of this technique, but as you explore it, you'll see the difference between pure subjectivity and those moments when you create yourself as a subject, as a person. 
When I get into the Ajahn Sumedho perspective, it's a matter of I can't stand any more of this and going into liking and disliking and all the habits of this personality. But if I trust in the awareness of it, then it is non-personal. I can be aware of this personality if it grumbles or complains or whatever and no longer feel an impulse to believe in it, to empower it or to follow it anymore. The way my personality has developed over the years causes me a lot of suffering. So if I depend on that to give me happiness, I won't have any. The point is to notice the difference between becoming a personality, that is the subject of your own experience, or being the absolute subject, your awareness. Now this is an intuitive sense. My experience is to trust the absolute subject. The personality is not something that I trust or believe in anymore. It takes a willingness to investigate this, however. It's not a matter of coming from a rejection of the personality, but of knowing its limitation, and no longer operating from personal reactions. This is something to experiment with. Clinging to the personality belief is a fetter which always restrains one from seeing the path from stream entry. So that's a sakayaditi, or self-view. That's the first of the, the fetters or the obstacles to stream entry. It's therefore important to explore what the personality belief, Sakayaditi, is. If you believe yourself to be this physical body and this person with these memories, you will operate from that. Your emotional reactions and habits will be all yours, and that's what you'll be endlessly influenced by. Getting to the still point, on the other hand, getting to the absolute subject beyond the personality, is where you begin to listen to your personality and not judge it. Not make nasty statements about it or try to change it. I would like to have a better personality. But rather get to know it as a mental object, something that comes and goes. We do tend to assume that we are this personality all the time. In terms of direct experience, however, we see it more as just a convention. When I talk about personality belief, I'm referring to the thing we create, that which we believe ourselves to be as a person. We have all our obsessions, identities, peculiarities, and so on. We carry them with us and identify with them. Now, it isn't a matter of dismissing or denying these, but of putting them into perspective. If we want to know what we really are, it's this pure subject. On a personal level, we create separation through becoming obsessed with my view, what I think of you, what you need, and so on. The way we talk to one another, and even the way we think about ourselves, can be very aggressive. The monks and nuns at Amaravati have become very interested in non-violent communication. We call it right speech. It's learning to be free from blaming. In America, we tend to put people up against the wall. Okay, what do you think? I want an answer right now. In Asia, they're very good at the face-saving technique, where things are said in an indirect way to give people some space. At least that is considerate, better, than, better I think, than I can tell you what's wrong with you. I can tell you what you need to do. People telling each other what they think of them can be cruel and arrogant. I know what you need. Instead of operating from this kind of thing, we can develop a willingness to listen both to others and to ourselves. We can listen to our own personality, even if it's being nasty and horrible. We'd have to, we don't have to agree with it. If we're in a terrible mood, just grumbling, complaining and blaming, we can learn to listen in an accepting way and see what happens. Instead of being the critic or controller, 
We can be more compassionate, more accepting. We can be that pure presence and live in this world without fear and without creating conflict and personal problems with others. So this, uh, this term, say, being the pure subject or the ultimate subject, that's a, a way of talking about um, awareness, so that uh, in the way of English language we say that the subject is talking about the, the experiencer and the object, the thing which is experienced, so that that subject-object is um, uh, the way that we talk about that. So when Lumpur says the ultimate subject, I say that sense of, of knowing or awareness or, or the, that which is the, the knower of experience um, uh, internally. So this is a, a very uh, useful and important common theme of his. And um, that sense of, uh, <clears throat> I would like to have a better personality is very common. If, if, if only I was somebody different, if only I wasn't me, everything would be great. It's very easy for us to think that. But uh, one of the ways that I like to, to talk about this principle is to say that which knows the person isn't a person. So that awareness is that which knows the personal feelings, the sensations of the body or thoughts or memories, emotions. That which knows those arising and passing isn't a person. It's, it's awake, it, it's, it's aware, the quality of, of knowing, but it's not, it's not personal. It's not female, it's not male, it's not old, it's not young, it's not monastic or lay or Theravadan or anything. Those personal qualities don't apply. It's just, it's just awake. And so that Lumpur uses this, this image of the still point at the center of the, of the turning wheel uh, also to describe that quality of, of, uh, a personal, uh, of non-personal knowing, that, uh, that quality of awareness which is beyond the ego. So I will leave it there for today. And if you have any questions or reflections on that, then you can bring them along tomorrow. If you remember, they're still there. But I'll leave it there for now. Namaya <laughs> <laughs>